Another big area I'm super excited about is hydrogen. And we're seeing many industry stakeholders that are considering hydrogen production and storage projects in addition to wind and solar. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please take two minutes to give us a review on iTunes, obviously with a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. Today, I'm joined by a prolific dealmaker in the renewable energy space, Mona Dejani, who's global co-head of Energy, Infrastructure, Mobility, Renewables, and Water at Pillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw, Pittman. Mona, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Hi, John. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yes. And based on our prior conversations, I'm really, I'm very privileged to to have you here today and looking forward to our chat. To get started, Mona, why don't you tell us briefly about your current role and the type of work you're doing at Pillsbury? Sure. I am the global co-head of, like you said, the Energy and Infrastructure Group. We cover clean energy, we cover hydrogen, we cover ESG, we cover sustainable finance, anything to do and clean tech. And what I do with my team, we're a full-service law firm, we're a global law firm. I sit in New York, but in, in normal non-COVID times, I'm in New York and London, so I'm dual qualified. And it's given me a very interesting perspective. So I'm able to represent companies in North America as well as in Europe, so because I'm qualified as, uh, as well. It's super exciting. We do everything clean energy, soup to nuts. And as a full-service firm, I have support in other areas, so it's multidisciplinary too as well. So I have like tax, I have IP, intellectual property support, I have regulatory support all over the world that help us support our clients in the space. Super. Well, you're a highly regarded, well-recognized, noted attorney with a lot of experience in the space, but For me, at least, my observation is you're so much more than that. And that's what I'd like to get into now a little bit with you and really have our listeners understand your journey. You're at the top of your game right now. You're involved in lots of major deals. You seem to be in the middle of so many major things that are happening. How'd you get to this point? Tell us about how you got into renewable energy deal making and kind of the journey that led you to where you are today? Sure. I didn't plan on even becoming a lawyer. I wore kind of many different hats. So I originally, you know, I went to college. I studied engineering. I worked in a big construction company right out of, right out of college, hated it. And then just 
decided to try some different things. And I became, I went to cooking school in France. I learned how to cook. I learned, I also learned about wines. And so I'm a, I'm a pretty good sommelier and chef now. Along the way, I, many years ago, I was offered an opportunity to work at an energy company called Enron in Houston. And I went there because they were giving me a shot. They thought that with my engineering background and my economics degree, that I could make some magic happen. And as a very junior person, I started getting into energy. And what I ended up doing was working as a junior, helping the corporate team put deals together that Enron was doing going forward. And then I always thought that the it would be interesting to further my education and at the expense of Enron. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. So I went and uh, I got a JD MBA and I used my educational background and my experience at Enron. And I started working at a law firm after I became a lawyer called Kirkland and Ellis. They primarily did a lot of private equity. So that's what I was doing. I was doing private equity in the energy space. So still very specialized, really pivoted away from the technical aspects of energy and focusing more on the economic and legal. And then I, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. And I was very interested. I worked at Enron on a wind energy project in Palm Springs in California. And I think it's one of the oldest projects in the United Mm -hmm. States. And that's what really gave me the bug, the renewable energy bug, which was, wow, this is an opportunity to promote clean energy, to help protect our environment, our earth. And it was unlike fossil fuel, which I'm not against, but there's an abundance, you know, it's it's infinite of solar and wind. And I just got super interested in it. And as a result, I really was very passionate about it too. And I was very grateful to have the opportunity to work on some very high profile deals throughout my career. And today I'm sitting in New York and London virtually and representing many different, not only energy companies, but also like in non-energy space with ESG, with sustainable finance, with renewable energy. So just very exciting times. So that's, that's like fast forward. That's the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> no, well, well, that's good. But the engineering piece, the engineering piece makes a world of sense to me because you're clearly a different type of clean energy lawyer. And one of the things that I've observed that's different about you is you're into the technology. And the fact that you've got an engineering background would explain to me why you kind of get it. You understand the technology. You're curious about the technology and you seem to be involved in a lot of kind of emerging technologies. So what else would you say that's like, what is it that makes you unique? How would you say you're different from other clean energy lawyers, other than that obvious piece about you being extremely knowledgeable on the technology side of things? Well, I would say in addition to understanding the foundation, which is the technology, it's also because I've been in the space for as long as I have been, I know a lot 
of the players. I know most of the players. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what I do when I see a deal, I look at it very holistically. When I see an opportunity, I will put companies together. I will have them form strategic partnerships. I really don't look at, you know, like most lawyers, just as a, it's just a job. I look at it like this could be the beginning of something that could last for a long time. And it's all about companies scaling and then innovating and then, you know, rinse and repeat. So I'm different in the sense that, yes, I have the engineering background and MBA, worked at Enron, an entrepreneur, but I'm always looking for value adds to assist my clients so that they can see the real benefits of not only being in the clean energy space, and you can make money in that space, but also about making those connections those strategic partnerships to making a deal scale and proliferating and innovation. Yeah. That connector piece is intriguing to me because I I mean, Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that's something we have in common. I mean, I'm very interested Mm -hmm. in bringing people together to help create value. Why do you think you're good at that? How did you get into it? I mean, it seems to be a natural instinct that people have. So what what does it mean to be an effective connector in in your space? I think what it means is that there's this, like I said, like this value add where I have so many people and companies that know me all around the world. I'm always bombarded by folks who are telling me about their technology or their company and what they're looking for and what they're interested in. And if you see this, let me know. If you're a client, I'm happy to assist in speeding up the process for executing on a deal. And the way you speed that up, because time is money, is trust. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to bring two different or three different or sometimes even 10 different companies together unless I feel like there's some synergies here. And it may not seem like it on the outside, but just be open-minded, which is what I am. And I'm very creative. Let's look at why do I think this could all work together and how can everyone be in a double win situation? So that's what I do that's different. So I'm not just like sitting at my desk waiting for something to come to me and I just like put all the documents together. No, I'm actually one of the architects bringing everyone together to make a deal work. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And when they work, they're major, they're big, they're prolific. So, and that to me is very rewarding personally and professionally. Yeah. In thinking about that, there's doing the paperwork associated with getting a deal done. And then there's helping to make a deal happen. Right. And I clearly see you in that latter, that latter group. And the piece about trust, I think is key. Like if you go to connect player A with player B, both of those players have to have a sense that hey, if Moda wants me to connect with this person, there's I trust that there's something there and I should do it and cultivating that trust. And that's in large part about knowing when to connect people, but more importantly, when not to. I get approached all the right. time, say, hey, John, will you connect me with so-and-so? If I don't think it works, I won't do it. Right. So saying no is, I think, as important. Knowing when to say no is as important as knowing 
when to do it. Absolutely. It's also the other thing that I do is a lot of lawyers don't do this. I give a commercial perspective because I know the industry and I know the technology and I know the economics for particular verticals that I'm very active in. And I'll also tell people when a deal doesn't make sense anymore or how do a deal looks like it's going to die because some unknown economic issue came up in the diligence, let's say. And thinking back to my cooking days, very creatively also to save a transaction if it makes sense, you know, and to think outside the box. Yeah. So the commercial perspective from your time at Enron, the technical perspective from your engineering education, and then the legal perspective, that's kind of a triple threat in getting clean energy deals done that I think is unique. Thank you for sharing that. Speaking of deals, what's the most challenging deal that you'd say you've been a part of? Look, a lot of the deals I work on are extremely challenging (laughs) (laughs) because because most of them are very, they have unique challenges. Some of them because of the cross-border, there's companies that are not all in the U.S., they're international. You know, I have a very big, thriving international practice. We had some very challenging deals around COVID, you know, and how do we get a deal done when we couldn't meet in person? You know, when you meet in person, it accelerates, I think, the trust or sometimes the distrust, but it accelerates it one way or the other. And so we had probably one of my most challenging deals was during COVID and it was cross-border. We had several different companies. One was in Asia, one was in Europe, and the deal was here in the U.S. And then also dealing with COVID and all those challenges, you know, not being in the office and having the support and of course, not being able to meet in person. And this happened early on during COVID. That was probably the hardest. I've worked on a number of deals and I'm very confident that whatever the challenges are, that I could and my team can overcome them. Sometimes one deal I had where the counterparty lost their investment grade status, that was major. And so how are we going to deal with that with the counterparties that we had? You know, this is a project finance deal. We have a number of of counterparties. We were able to come up with some solutions and close that deal. I've had other deals where There were so many cumulative negative things that happened (laughs) that, you know, some of them were change in law. Some of them were had to do with COVID again or the technology not being where we thought it was going to be. And so it just didn't work. So my job is to either make the deal work if it makes economic sense or to pull the plug and do it sooner rather than later and stop having like all these different band-aids on a deal to try to make it work. And I will definitely counsel my clients, like I said, not just on the legal, but the commercial aspects, the economic aspects, the reputational aspects, the market intelligence, what does it look like going forward? So there's a lot of different, again, and and it helped me I look at a deal very holistically. So I'm not looking at it very myopically as a lawyer that just is papering up a deal, like I said earlier. I mean, it's just not, that's not me. Yeah, interesting. Well, you covered a lot of ground there with a lot of different types of challenges. The one that really caught my 
ear is the uh, knowing how sensitive deals are to creditworthiness. To have someone lose their investment grade status in the middle of a deal and still get it closed, that that alone says a lot to me. So uh, yes. good on yes. you. We uh, brought someone else. We brought someone else to share. We brought another party in. So we just, we made the party bigger. And that other party clearly had, was investment grade and they were able to share some of the risk. So that was one way that we were able to resurrect it. And then, of course, we had some purchase price adjustments, too, as well, that are associated around that. And we had to redo some of the documents to reflect the new risk profile. But it was successful. Yeah, yeah, you got it done. That's a great story. I love that story. Let's move on to talk about kind of the current state of renewable energy deal making. What do you see, Mona, as as the major trends in renewable energy deals right now and kind of the overall market? Well, I think because of COVID, we've seen real acceleration for energy and clean energy. And you have countries, you have different big utilities and businesses that are, whether they're oil and gas majors or have nothing to do with energy whatsoever, they're announcing their goals to pursue decarbonization plans. And some of them are in response to COVID, but many others is we're seeing as a result, we're seeing increased energy demand. We're seeing that this is becoming much more resilient. We're seeing rising capacity and usage factors. And that Renewables and clean energy are really edging out some of the other power generation sources, such as using fossil fuels. You know, we're seeing that, you know, the renewable energy growth has been accelerating now under the the new Biden administration here in the United States and are rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and not just in the United States, but with COP26 too, as we're seeing that there's been more investments in clean energy and fully decarbonizing the power sector by, they've been saying 2025 and 2030. Renewable energy has been focused heavily on solar and wind, but there's other technologies, including advanced batteries for storage, offshore wind and hydrogen. And these new technologies are moving us forward toward commercialization. And we're going to see a lot more projects in the space. I could tell you that some of the other things I've been personally seeing, because you know this is all I do, it's all I have been doing for over 20 years, is that I'm seeing a lot of deal activity across the value chain with many different stakeholders that are consolidating positions. And because we're seeing companies, oil and gas majors, and governments that are setting these very ambitious climate goals, and there are different types of industry players that are consolidating their positions across the value chain. As you know, I've worked on, we're seeing a number of special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, I've worked on like the largest renewable natural gas this year. We're seeing rising state 
renewable portfolio standards that are increasing the levels of corporate and residential demand, and it's improving economic competitiveness for renewables. We're seeing more federal support here in the United States, but also globally. Different countries, some of them have mandates and stimulus and tax incentives to capture more renewable energy deals, especially in the power, oil and gas, and utility industries. Out of 174 M&A deals that were announced early this year, 144 of them involve renewable energy companies. Wow. So I think that's a big deal. We're seeing, I'm also seeing, and I'm working on a lot of gas pipeline projects where they're serving as incentives for power companies to bypass plans to invest in natural gas as a bridge fuel and double down on more investments in renewables. I'm also representing a lot of investors, Mm -hmm. and they're seeing that if they invest in renewable energy assets, that could enhance their portfolio by generating steady cash flows and providing asset diversification. And there's a lot of developers and installers that are consolidating among the distributed energy resource providers to provide lower costs to restructure projects to better handle delays and gain efficiencies and complementary businesses. So we're seeing like, you know, we worked on Sunrun's acquisition of Vivint, which helped consolidate the Resi solar market. And we've seen many different stakeholders that are seeing the additional opportunities to capitalize. Another big area that I'm super excited about is hydrogen. That's another big area. And we're seeing many industry stakeholders that are considering hydrogen production and storage projects, in addition to wind and solar, to help get to net zero. We're seeing many oil and gas companies as part of their decarbonization strategy and electric and gas utilities announce plans and we're helping them work on hydrogen production to be used as power generation. We're seeing more renewable penetration on the grid and green hydrogen development to follow. And it's acting not only as a seasonal storage of fuel, but also as a way to balance the power for the grid. Because hydrogen, unlike natural gas, lies at the intersection of electric and gas networks. And I've been working on deals in a lot more in Europe, but I started working more this past year here in the United States with blending hydrogen and natural gas to support utilities and pipelines and oil and gas majors' decarbonization efforts. So this provided, I see, major opportunities in the the clean hydrogen space for utilities, oil and gas majors, in the transportation sector, as a feedstock too for the industrial sector. And also it is, I'm working on different aggregation platforms to further integrate renewables in integrating stationary and vehicular battery storage. Just a few weeks ago, 
I worked on, I brought together two of my clients, Nikola, the hydrogen truck company, together with TC Energy, formerly known as TransCanada, on very exciting hydrogen projects there. So very interesting. I'm also seeing a lot of energy storage where, you know, it's becoming one of the most fastest growing asset classes in the energy industry. We're seeing falling costs and a maturing technology, and they're making use cases for storage, energy storage, more economical for multiple functions, whether it's ancillary grid services to on-demand power. We're seeing an increase by utilities and customers in microgrids and using solar and storage to build resilience. And we're seeing that the cost uh, synergies and operational efficiencies of pairing storage with solar offer significant value. And that is boosted by the investment tax credits that are currently available and that are going to be, you know, and over 30% of the storage deals that are slated to become online in this year alone are solar plus storage. We're also seeing a trend towards co-locating supersized batteries as solar plus storage prices fall. So utilities and developers are increasingly looking to energy storage to meet the intermittency problems and the capacity shortfalls. And there have been some storage mandates, too, in multiple states, as you know, John. I know you know about, you know, New York and New Jersey and Arizona, which will ramp up. So I'm seeing that. I'm also, I've had the opportunity, another big trend in the United States only, but not in Europe, is offshore wind. Offshore wind, big. We're seeing a wave of supportive state and federal policy initiatives specifically targeted to the U.S. offshore wind industry. And we're seeing, and we've, been, we've had the opportunity to work on some really major offshore wind projects. And despite the pandemic, we're seeing that there are states here in the United States that are proceeding with plans to develop also supply chain infrastructure to help offshore wind. You know, New York State alone announced the largest ever renewable re- renewable energy solicitation, which 60% consists of offshore wind. And that's approximately like 2.5 gigawatts. So I'm beginning to see more efficiency with larger wind turbines, taller towers, longer cables, and wind manufacturers using more higher capacity turbines to boost the efficiencies and I'm seeing a lot also in offshore wind. There's, we're seeing oil and gas companies that are making significant investments in floating offshore wind, which has been around in Europe for a long time. We're seeing you know, a lot of oil and gas companies that are shifting their focus towards new consistent revenue source in this low-carbon business. Some interesting deals were like BP buying a 50% stake in Empire Wind and Beacon Wind projects, which are owned by Equinor, which are located off the coast here on the East Coast in New York and Massachusetts. And the last trend that I wanted to mention here, 
on your show, which is super important in the renewable energy, is the supply chain strategies and how the different creative ways that I'm seeing to address the COVID-19 disruptions and how to digitize the supply chains. And so this is a priority. I can tell you I'm working firsthand on deals where we're representing a number of stakeholders in, in the renewable energy where we're looking at, okay, how do we diversify the supply chain outside of China and try to seek more tariff-friendly sources? We've seen an increase in recent tariffs here in the United States from 15 to 18%, and the elimination of the exemption for bifacial solar panels. So we're seeing a lot of ways that how, how is the supply chain dealing towards this? And this shift in U.S. policy and regulation is expected to safeguard some of the technology and the data that are especially prevalent with renewable energy projects on, from cyber attacks. And people are seeing the importance of the U.S. to be more economically independent and less dependent on other countries for strategic materials and products. And so we're seeing diversification of supply to build resilience. And we're also seeing some, and I know like the Biden administration is trying to boost some domestic manufacturing sector here in the U.S., made in America tax credits. That would help to help incentivize diversifying some of the, the supply chain. And then we're also seeing more, and this is something I'm very into as well, digital technologies and artificial intelligence on the supplier supply chain. This means like applying robotics, automation, analytics to asset tracking and predictive maintenance to help track supply chain disruptions and understand what is at risk for supply and then assist with contingencies and other warehousing. So those are yeah. just some of the things here. Yeah. <laughs> Mona, Mona, Mona. Yes. That was mad crazy. Oh my goodness. You touched on so many things there. You hit the drivers behind the boom around emission reduction and oil and gas no longer fighting it and getting on board. Utilities no longer fighting renewables and getting on board. You know, the demand is just mushrooming because of those three things alone. Then you throw on top of that all the money that is is being funneled into sustainable finance. I mean, it's you really hit key drivers. I would encourage everybody that's listening to the podcast to listen to the last 10 and a half, 12 minutes, because that was really an incredible short course for a description of where the industry is today. You hit a couple key things about you know emerging categories that I think are big opportunities. And one, of course, you mentioned was, was hydrogen. Now, I'm mostly familiar with the demand for hydrogen from the feedstock side. Industrial companies make emission reduction commitments. A lot of their load is from thermal processes. They need to decarbonize natural gas. Hydrogen is the great hope. But it's really expensive, difficult to make. And if you make it, there's really no way to ship it. 
And then there's the storage component, which is an entirely different application. What's your take on what's happening in storage and what types of deals are going to be needed? And what's the time frame for that to be really commercially viable? Well, I'll just say that I'm very much immersed in the hydrogen space and I'll call it clean hydrogen. It's been around, hydrogen has been around for over 100 years. The reason now it's really taking off, at least from an American standpoint, is because of the push for net zero and decarbonization. But before COVID, I was working on many hydrogen projects Mm -hmm. already and putting deals together. And it's just like the EV market, which I'm also extremely bullish about. If you are not in the market now, you're going to miss out and you're going to lose on being a first responder in the marketplace. And yes, hydrogen is, you know, and there's many different types of hydrogen. There's green and pink and blue, but I'm going to stay away from that. I'm just going to stay with clean hydrogen, which is just trying, it's using hydrogen to get to net zero. And it's, it is, it's, everyone is very excited about this, about hydrogen for a number of reasons. And right now it is expensive, but like they're equating hydrogen to what akin to what solar was 15 or 20 years ago. And it was, there's all these different technologies and applications. And really what's, what's happening is those countries Okay, and we have like eight or nine right now in Europe, and we have a few in in um, Asia and also in the Middle East. When you have a country that has that promotes hydrogen strategies with incentives, you're seeing proliferation of deals, whether they're with the traditional oil and gas majors to we're also working on deals where we're combining renewables with hydrogen, and really. What we've been working on in Europe is what we're working on here in the United States, which is hydrogen hubs. And that really is the favored pathway for how this is going to develop, how the sector will will be developed. And these are largely driven by the private sector, but there's some public support and funding acts, these tax incentives or incentives that acts as accelerators. And we're seeing hydrogen hubs, which are like clusters or valleys that are created around a full value chain of co-located combined hydrogen production, infrastructure, and utilization. And again, the reason I love this so much is that we're, we're combining a number of different contributing elements that create a hydrogen hub. So there, it would include readily available renewable energy power, a local carbon-intensive industrial process, and credible business development pathways. And what we're seeing is that all of these hydrogen hubs that we're working on or that have already been announced, they're all around the different parties, strategic counterparties coming together, you know, like the beginning of the of the podcast that we were talking about, all these different parties coming together, these counterparties, and they're all bringing a different perspective and advantage, whether it's technology or it's money or it's infrastructure or it's a combination. So we're seeing a wide range of project scales that are benefiting from 
this industrial cluster and demand centers. And the name of the game is scale, you know, scaling to get it bigger. And they're located also in areas so that they can export the hydrogen to other areas, whether it's by pipeline or by shipping or whatever. But those countries that are supporting both the production and the proliferation of these hydrogen hubs, that's what we're seeing the most. So, you know, very excited about that. We're working with utilities, oil and gas majors, shipping companies, construction companies. It's just heavy, heavy equipment manufacturers too. Very exciting. Okay. That's good insight. I think we'll definitely be keeping our eye on what's happening with these hubs that develop. You, you know, what's interesting is that you mentioned something that leads into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, Mona, and that is you talked about the importance of incentives. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about the Biden administration's infrastructure package and the clean energy components of it, because we really don't know where that's where that's going to go at this point. But we're hopeful something's going to happen. And I guess given your kind of deep knowledge and, and perspective, uh, I'm, I'm curious, if you could write the clean energy piece of the infrastructure package right now, what would be the main things that you would include in it that you'd like to see passed that you think would really be accelerants to, to moving the market? Well, you know, I think several things. I think that we saw in the past with some tax credits whether they're in the form of tax credits or incentives or a grant, something to help accelerate the proliferation of clean energy, I think it helps. So I would like to see a number of uh, clean energy measures, such as where there is both on a national level so that it is a national strategy whether it is with hydrogen, which, with storage, with electric vehicles and fleet, the electrification of transportation, it would be all together and all with the goal of achieving a net zero emission by 2050. So that would be what I see is incentives. I want more incentives. I want more standardization by the specific technology. I think that's necessary, like in hydrogen, in storage, in wind and solar. I would like to see, with respect to the electrification of transportation, you know, incentives around not just the actual car, but what about the funding for the parts, the ports, the charging ports, and retrofitting buildings and residences? How do we all of this together, so it's a bigger, you know, looking at this holistically ecosystem together. And I think that it would also be showing, giving credit to companies that are investing in ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance funds or companies that they should be, they should also have be incentivized to do that too as well. And I think that it would be very helpful to allocate more incentives to not only ESG funds, but also to the banks that provide a lot of the funding, that if we rate some of these ESG factors and, and they become more standardized, 
that they would be more incentives for the ultimate borrower here. So I would, you know, there's some things that are more important than others. I think it's another, like and I'm, I'm talking broad strokes here that I think is important, would be also that we're very sensitive in our space about greenwashing and where companies do something but they don't really mean it. And so I think authenticity is also very important and somehow to measure that too so that we can prevent Greenwashing is so that there's like a features value-based investing that should also be encouraged. I, I think that Biden's infrastructure plan contains more than climate change. There's many different elements to it, but I think that what, what I'm focused more on for purposes of this podcast is the materials, the utilities, the industrials with the clean energy, and how do we build and upgrade the infrastructure and how do we reinforce what's already happening and where the world is already going. So I would just make it more holistic and with specific targets for some of these these industries that I talked about in also embracing clean energy going forward. Yeah, that's that's super. I mean, this idea of a total systems approach that it takes, or you refer to it as the ecosystem from end to end, that would really have the most impact. I mean, extending the solar one that's in place, extending the wind one that's in place, new tax credits or incentives for hydrogen storage and EV fleets. Oh my goodness. You would need to clone yourself six times over, Mona, in order to handle all the business. <laughs> But that's what we need. We need more Monas. Yeah. You know, before we move uh, on to another topic, you know, you talk about bringing people together. You talk about helping people do deals. When's the right time for someone to reach out to you? It's obviously not when they just want to talk about their company and what they think is interesting. Like, when should somebody be reaching out to you? That's a really good question, John, because, you know, like yourself, I'm very busy. And I'm fascinated to hear from people about the new technologies and what's happening. You know, and I, I have investors calling me every day too as well with they're like, hey, if you see X, Y, and Z, I'm interested in investing. Well, the time to get me is when you actually either are about to have a deal or you think you may have a deal, you're ready to engage and put money behind it, meaning you can you have a budget for legal. <laughs> right. And once I see that and you're serious, I'm happy to help. But it's um, I'm always helping my clients. If you're not already a client or I don't see you becoming a client nearby, you're not going to be on the top of my head. Of course. Because I have so many people coming to me and asking me for help. So it's always better when you are very serious. Right. Either you have a potential deal in mind or you already have a deal and now you need someone to execute it. That's where I could come in and then I could probably make the deal even better by enhancing it, by inviting more investors, by inviting more stakeholders in the project to make it really work. So that's kind of some of the value adds I add to yeah, that makes sense. Well, thanks for adding that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to move on now to my favorite part of the conversation of Smart Energy Voices, Mona, where we get to know our guest 
a little more on a personal level. Although I will say we've gotten to know you pretty well here so far, uh, but let's go, let's go even a little sure. further. Why are, are you personally passionate about the clean energy space? What drives you to work as hard as you do, as long hours you do and do what you do? You know, some people are only about making money. Some people are about making their parents happy. I don't know. But for me, it's purpose. Mm -hmm. And I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave this world in a better place. I have kids. They will have kids. And I really feel like that is my biggest contribution to humanity is really leaving the world in a better place by helping promote strategies for net zero to how do we become less reliant on old or dirty technologies and some fossil fuel. You know, I'd like us to become more, have more artificial intelligence, to have more renewable energy and to leave the world a a really better place and also have fun in what I'm doing. So I certainly enjoy what I do. I'm good at what I do. And I think you can you can make money doing this. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, for me, it's about making the world see how important it is that we only have one earth and that to leave it better for our future generations. And that's really what motivates me the most, yeah. that legacy and that purpose. That's great. I like the way you tied in kind of what impact you want to have on the world uh, with your main driver and and passion for the space. And I share that passion. And and I think it's a common characteristic of the most successful people in this industry. They're all driven by making a difference and wanting to change the world. What do you consider your greatest accomplishment? What are you most, most proud of? And it could be a business. It could be personal. I'm just curious. I think that for me, what I'm most proud of is being in this business for a long time, for over 20 years, and overcoming both personal and professional setbacks Mm -hmm. and still being able to come on top and being resilient and really showing by example to my children and to my colleagues that work with me and to my clients that you can be a good person and get ahead and do well and really make a difference and leave a really good legacy. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's important. There are a lot of people that achieve great success, success at kind of your level of the game, and they haven't been as focused on also being known and considered as a good person. So kind of doing the right thing and being very successful are are very important. What's the biggest challenge that you feel you've had to uh, face I think the biggest challenge for me is probably that being able to navigate the politics. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I'm talking, you know, the politics of workplace in particular, and also politics of watching your clients. You know, this comes from years of experience to be able to identify and how to navigate through some of that. And sometimes it means you just have to leave <laughs> and you start somewhere new. Sometimes it means that 
you may bite your tongue a little bit more on instead of saying what you really truly feel. And, you know, I hope I get to a point where I could maybe when I retire, really have a playbook. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. For how do you get ahead when you're surrounded by sharks? And how do you navigate all the political challenges? And I'm happy where I am now, but, you know, I've had some challenges and I've dealt with some, I hate to say it, dinosaurs. Yeah. And that don't see that women can be even more successful in this space than men because they happen to have maternal instincts. And also in my case, the technical and economic expertise too as well. So I thought that when I saw my own mother who is who is someone that I hold up very high and look very much as a, you know, on a pedestal to me as an example, she was the first woman to graduate from medical school in the 60s. And I thought we would have made more advances for women. There have been some, but it it happened much slower than I anticipated. So I just hope for future generations, including my daughter and my son, who is a feminist, that the world will be a, we won't have some of the roadblocks and challenges from the dinosaurs, as I call them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'll tell you, the world is full of dinosaurs and sharks. That's right. I think we could do a whole other episode and conversation on navigating yes. policy. <laughs> swimming, swimming with the sharks. I could totally, yes, absolutely. Particularly if your goal is to be considered a good person while you achieve great success, right? Because I think mm-hmm. it's it's easy in a big corporate setting to say, okay, it's sharky waters. I'm going to put my sharky on. And mm-hmm. how do you succeed politically in a very intense environment without devolving into that mode? So I really appreciate what you just shared and that will definitely be subject for a later conversation. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned your mom and she's obviously got to be very proud of you. Who would you say has, has -hmm. had the greatest impact on your career and separately or together? Who do you admire most professionally? There's been a number of people that have had impacts on my career, but you know, from a distance, right? I created my own future myself. I would say that my mom was probably the biggest impact in my life and my, both my mom and dad, Mm -hmm. but my mom in particular for really pushing me and always seeing the best that I could be in the highest capacity, using everything I have to my, my best of my abilities. So that was, that's something, but then I've had some really great opportunities to work and know with some work with people in whether they're clean energy or they're in economics or they're bankers that are now celebrities and people know them. And I have had the opportunity to work with a number of people that are former colleagues of mine or from a professional sense or even back to college days too as well that are today very famous people in our space. Mm-hmm. And I've been very blessed and grateful to, to have that opportunity to know them. And they have also served for me as a catalyst to say, look, you know, anyone could, 
you know, you just have to put your mind at what you want and you can achieve it. And look at these other people that are just regular people that have made it big. Some financially, some from a celebrity stardom standpoint, and some from people knowing and respecting and that are that are very well known. So I look to a number of those people too. And I'm hopeful that one of one of these days that that's probably going to be my next stop, that I will be even you know outside of renewables and clean energy and clean tech to make a difference. Mona, you've made a difference. You're what you've done in the end. I mean, what you've done with the deals that you've helped make happen have made a difference. I think what you've done individually to advance the industry have made a difference. So take a moment to give yourself proper credit because you've done a great (laughs) job and you've already had a great impact. And this has been just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to get to know you better by being a guest on Smart Energy Voices. John, I want to say thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spend time with you today. I would take you up on your offer uh. <laughs> on the second podcast if you want to do that. But um, you are amazing. And I know you were just in a very important wedding recently. So <laughs> yes. So kudos to you thank and you. your daughter, Maria. And very much loved being on your show and look forward to hopefully another opportunity to be with you again. We're going to do it again. I meant it when I said it. I meant it when I said it. (laughs) Thank you, John. Well, thank you. To our listeners, thanks for listening and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this incredible episode with Mona, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can participate in our next event, see the links in the show notes or visit the events tab of our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Mona in this podcast, on our website and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day and thanks for sharing some of your time with us. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.